Welcome to Valley Church. If we haven't met before, my name is Michael. I'm the pastor here. It's been a minute since I've uh, been up here teaching. Um, we had our baby, Rosie, at the end of November. Yeah, she's in here, right there. Um, yeah, we can applaud my wife for delivering a child. Yes. Um, life's just been a wild ride since then and leading up to it and uh, felt scattered. I don't know about you, but I've just been... It's just been a scattered, beautiful mess, um, but I'm ready just to kind of try to sink back into a little bit of normal, if that's even possible. And that includes teaching in the book of Matthew at Valley Church. So that's what we're doing this evening. Um, we left off in chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 22. But because it's been a while since, we've, since I've taught in Matthew and then a while since we've opened it together, I want to just do a quick recap of the big picture of what the Gospel of Matthew is about before we get into our section. Um, this book that we've been reading and studying for three years um, is a first century biography about a rabbi called Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be begin the process of ushering in the kingdom of God. That word Messiah means anointed one. Its Greek counterpart is Christos, where we get the word Christ. Um, so the Messiah is this figure that's kind of pointed to and looked forward to in the Old Testament uh, by the prophets, um, and they talk about this figure who would come, God would anoint or kind of set apart to help usher in this uh, new age and restore um, Israel's kingdom. And through his word and his actions, Jesus showed himself to be the Messiah. That's kind of what we've been reading in the Gospel of Matthew over and over again. Um, Matthew, the author of our book um, and one of Jesus' followers, has brilliantly laid out this biography to kind of show us that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Um, and he is the continuation and the fulfillment of the story of Israel. So all that Matthew tells us that Jesus did and said are true things that Jesus did and said, but he's also laying them out in a specific way, in a specific order with kind of logic and also creativity to help us see who Jesus is in relationship to the Old Testament. Um, and so in the first three chapters, Matthew tells us the story of Jesus' birth and how um, all these stories about how he was born and the nature surrounding, all of them fulfill, kind of point to these Old Testament promises and prophecies about the Messiah. Um, in the next few chapters, Matthew tells us stories about Jesus announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near, it's coming with Jesus. And in the same breath, Matthew tells us that Jesus is healing people, both physically and spiritually. So that's kind of what we're meant to see is that that's what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes, as people are delivered and healed. And then chapter five, Jesus gives us this like, manifesto of what the character and the behavior of what people, the character and behavior of people in his kingdom, what it should look like. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters eight through 10, we see all these stories of Jesus bringing the kingdom into people's lives, um, freeing them from demonic oppression, healing, calming the seas. Um, he sends his disciples out to do this work too in chapter 10. And then in chapters 11 through 13, we're presented with um, a lot of different people or groups' responses to Jesus and all that he was doing. The crowds would see a miracle and think, oh, he must be the Messiah, or there's John the Baptist who was in prison and wondering, is this the Messiah or should we look for someone else because I thought the Messiah was gonna set prisoners free and here I am in prison. And then we have the Pharisees and other religious leaders who um, over and over again reject Jesus. That, that, that's their response to him being the Messiah. They reject him. 
Um, and this section ends with these parables, or like has these symbolic stories about um, just they're describing what the kingdom of God is like. Namely, that though it doesn't seem big or important or flashy or loud or powerful, it actually um, is incredibly um, powerful and beautiful in just a really sneaky at first but beautiful way. Uh, chapters 14 through 20 tell all manner of stories de- uh, dealing with various people and groups coming to terms with their expectations about the Messiah and what he, uh, who he was, what they thought he was gonna be like, um, and maybe versus what he was actually like. Most thought that his arrival meant that a revolution was imminent, uh, that, that Jesus was going to raise an army to overthrow Rome, their oppressors. Um, the disciples even thought this at times. Or uh, if they didn't think that, then they thought that the kingdom of God was like the other kingdoms of the world, and so they were kind of vying for positions of power and authority, hoping that when Jesus launched his kingdoms that they would be his, you know, his number two or three guys. Um, but the Pharisees continued in their rejection of Jesus. They were unwilling that this stonemason from the sticks outside of Galilee who kind of turned everything that they believed on its head could possibly be the Messiah. They were threatened by all the things that he was saying and doing. They were threatening, he was threatening the authority and power that they had. So now we're in the next section, chapters 21 through 25, um, where we are now. This is where um, Jesus and the Pharisees like really come to a head. Um, the Bible Project, we talked about it before in their kind of poster and video that kind of gives us an overview of the book of Matthew. They call this section the Clash of Kingdoms, the kingdom of God represented by Jesus and then the kingdom of the world, but also like of the religious system that the Pharisees represent. They're really coming to a head in chapters 21 through 25. And Jesus, in this section, really lays into the Pharisees and the religious leaders, brings these harsh indictments that they are leading people astray. They've totally missed the arrival of God in the person of Jesus. This is why when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the heart of the holy city, he is angry at what he sees in the temple, and he, it seems silly to us, but he sees this fruitless fig tree, and he curses it because it represents to him this Israel and their fruitless religion and all the hypocrisy that the Pharisees and religious leaders have brought about um, in Jerusalem. So in chapter 22, where we are today, we find ourselves in the middle of this battle where the religious leaders having just been confronted by Jesus in the temple, told off by Jesus in these parables where he's basically saying, the kingdom of God does not belong to you. They're taking it from you and we're gonna give it to these people who you think are um, less than. And so now in chapter 22, the Pharisees and others are sort of retaliating. At least that's the way it seems that Matthew's trying to help us see it, is that they're kind of battling back and forth. And so they're coming to Jesus with these questions hoping to be smart and trap him with these sneaky questions, hoping he'll answer wrong and either prove himself to be a fraud or say something that kind of alienates Jesus from other, other groups. Um, and their first test was a question about paying taxes to Caesar. They were hoping that Jesus would say something treasonous against Rome and maybe be you know, imprisoned or executed or hoping that he would align himself with Rome too much and alienate people in Israel. Of course, um, they failed to trap Jesus. Um, My father-in-law, Mike, did a great job teaching this passage a little while ago. Go back and listen if you missed it. Um, But our passage today is basically the next attempt of the religious leaders to try to trap Jesus. So, Jesus claims to be the Messiah, claims to be bringing the kingdom of God. He announces it. He proves it with all sorts of signs and wonders. Some people are amazed and respond positively to Jesus. Some are confused, and some, like these religious leaders, reject him, are threatened by him, trying to discredit him, get rid of him. 
Um, and so if we could see the book of Matthew like from a thousand feet up or really maybe see it like a movie, the, the tension would be escalating right now. We would be kind of feeling like, oh my word, this is building to something. And this little battle between Jesus and the Pharisees is kind of the last bit of tension leading up to um, his crucifixion. So that was a lot of recap. We're gonna get into our passage. Chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. That same day, the Sadducees, who, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. As we look at it and study it, would you meet us here? Would your presence be with us? Would you illuminate this so that it's more than interesting information or just information, but something that transforms us, that you, your actual presence meets us here in these words and you begin to shape us more into the image of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we have a different group now that is questioning Jesus, trying to trap him. In the last passage, it was the Pharisees and a group called the Herodians. And now it's the Sadducees. Verse 23, that same day, so we're meant to see this as just happening very quickly after the last line of questioning happened. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. Um, so the Pharisees trying to trap him with a question about Caesar's, uh, about paying taxes to Caesar. In this case, we have the Sadducees. They're still part of the religious leaders called the Sanhedrin, um, but the Sadducees were wealthy and then quite a bit more interested in, in um, kind of gaining and keeping political power. That's kind of how they thought they were going to help Israel be successful and um, prosper is by getting political power. Um, and as of note for today, they did not believe in the concept of the resurrection. They were old school traditionalists who only held to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Those were, the, for them, the only books of the Bible that had authority for them as scripture. Um, and according to them, those books did not teach resurrection and so they didn't believe in it. Um, and so they come to Jesus with a question, but it's a question with the intent to ridicule a rabbi, not to obtain information. They're not coming humble, actually asking a legitimate question. They're hoping to trap him, um, not learn from him. And their question in verse 24, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. They call him teacher. Um, I believe it's like a, a disingenuous sign of respect. They don't actually respect him as a rabbi, but they're trying to pretend like they do. And they bring up this Old Testament call called Leveret Marriage from Deuteronomy 25. 
If a husband dies before having kids, his brother was supposed to marry his wife to preserve their family line, kind of keep their inheritance in their family. Um, it seems strange to us. Grant Osborne, a Bible scholar, says the purpose of Leverett marriage was to protect the name of a deceased brother without children and to guarantee that he would have legal heirs and thus the ancestral lands would continue in the family as well as to take care of the widow who would often be left destitute. So when a man died childless, his brother was supposed to marry his wife and bear children in his name. So they've got that Old Testament law as kind of fact and now they're gonna ask him a question based on that. And they introduce the mother of all hypothetical scenarios in verse 25. There were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? This is a semi-ridiculous hypothetical scenario, but uh, the Sadducees intended to use it to trap Jesus. If this woman was truly married to each of these seven brothers in this life, who will she be married to in the next life if they're actually raised from the dead? So they're pitting one of God's laws against another, trying to prove wrong a theological concept that they already don't believe in. So the logic is like this. There's, they're taking a few things as a fact. One, God commands marriage uh, to be between one man and one woman for life. We find that in Genesis 1. The second thing, God commands brothers of deceased husbands to marry the widow, Deuteronomy 25. And then three is the assumption that God is a God of order and logic and wouldn't command a practice, leveret marriage, that would lead to such a ridiculous scenario, a polygamous scenario in the resurrection. So what they assume in here is that marriage in the age to come after the resurrection will be the same as marriage as it is now. So they're assuming that, and therefore they're coming to the conclusion that the resurrection can't be real. But if you line all those facts out and premises and assumptions, there's another, there's an alternative. <laughs> um, Grant Osborne, another quote here, he says, the question itself assumes a stance against polygamy. The Sadducees are trying to force Jesus into a no-win situation. Either he denies the afterlife or accepts polygamy. Um, it is clear that their entire purpose is to ridicule the idea of life after death, and in doing so, trap Jesus and discredit his teaching. Maybe it's obvious to you, but there's, Another option, logically, for uh, Jesus here, and he takes it. So option one, they've decided there must be no resurrection. Jesus couldn't, God couldn't command people to obey a practice that would eventually lead them into sin. Um, but the other option is that maybe marriage in the resurrection isn't like it is today. That's the option that Jesus um, presents to them and teaches them. So that's what he says in verse 29. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I love that response. I just feel like it's the ultimate shutdown. Like maybe we could use it with each other if we're having like theological debates, you know? You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Um, when Jesus says you're in error, it's, this, it's a rather strong way. He's basically saying you are way off. You have wandered away far off from understanding and seeing the big picture. They failed to read and believe all of the Hebrew Bible, um, which does teach resurrection, and they failed to believe that God is powerful enough to raise people from the dead. So then he offers this teaching and the correction in verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So the Sadducees assume that the resurrected life will be just like the life that we live now. But Jesus teaches us that in the resurrection, our relationships are going to change. So marriage as we know of it now, experience it now, will not exist 
in that way in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus doesn't say that we'll have no memory of people or our relationships um, in this life. Um, he only says that men won't marry and women won't be given in marriage. So if this makes you sad, we're gonna talk about it in a little bit. If this makes you happy, we should talk about that, maybe privately. <laughs> um, but let's finish the passage. Verse 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus is drawing emphasis kind of to the grammar of what God says in the Exodus is what he's quoting, God speaking to Moses. He calls himself in the present tense. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had died by the time he was saying this to Moses. He didn't say, I was their God until they died. He says, I am their God. And so the assumption is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob exist. As, Jesus, as God is saying that to Moses, that he is the God of these patriarchs who are still alive. He remains their God in that moment. So the Sadducees deny the resurrection because they don't find evidence for it in the first five books of the Bible. But here Jesus is showing it as a truth, as a reality in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, the second book, that God is the God of life. He creates life, he sustains life, and he can recreate life or resurrect uh, those who have died and are in God's family. He can bring them back. So the last verse, verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Apparently the crowds were hanging around this conversation too, watching the showdown. Um, and when they fail to stump him, uh, when Jesus corrects them on their error about the resurrection and the marriage and stuff, they are amazed. It doesn't say that they believed in him. It said they were astonished that Jesus was able to kind of fight back with the Sadducees. Um, another, I think it's in Luke's account of the story, some of the religious leaders are, are around in this scene. They say something like, well said, teacher, which is first century speak for game recognized game, touche. Um, so usually my goal when we have like one kind of manageable passage like this is to have like an overarching point that I think the passage is trying to help us understand and we wanna kind of apply that to us, um, figure out a way to apply it to our lives in a way that's honoring to the original intent of, of Matthew but also makes sense for our time and place right now. Some passages lend themselves more readily to that. This one in my mind has like these little like nuggets of theological truth for us to think about, but it's like big application, something that should that cause us to think is more, more comes from the whole section that we're looking at, 21 through 23 or so. And so I'll just talk about the like, the, the truths that Jesus is teaching as kind of separate and we'll let those be truth for us and then talk about kind of maybe a, a, a bigger picture way that it um, can play out in our lives. Um, but so the, the small things, they're not, not important, but the more manageable things are the humans like angels thing and then the marriage in heaven thing. So in verse 30, he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So when he says they will be like the angels in heaven, this, he's saying um, we will be like angels in heaven with respect to marriage and sexuality. He doesn't say we're going to turn into angels and be exactly like them in every way, but just in respect to our relationships. Um, that in the new heaven and earth, uh, when we are in our resurrected state, we will join in on how the angels have been all along, which is not married. So the concept of there being no marriage in heaven, I don't know if you've, thought about it, if it bothers you, or if you don't think about it, if you don't care. Um, it's a little hard for us to understand. Perhaps it makes us sad or curious about what our future life in heaven will be like, but let's just think about it for a second. 
uh, I think the biblical, biblically like clearly stated or implied purposes of marriage um, will not be necessary in the new heaven and the new earth. So the purpose, one of them in Genesis 1, is that both man and woman kind of collectively in their marriage can image God. Another purpose, Genesis 1, is for man to have a helper in the creation project of man being put in the garden to kind of work and keep the garden and create this world and culture into something uh, beautiful, a space for God's glory to be displayed. That won't be necessary in the new heaven and the new earth. It will already be complete and glorious. Another purpose of marriage in Genesis 1 is being fruitful and multiplying, but this will not be part of the experience of those in the new heaven in the resurrected world. Um, another purpose of marriage that we read about in the New Testament, so this is post-garden, post-fall, um, is that marriages can point, to, um, point a broken world to Jesus. So when you watch two people, um, two broken people filled with the Spirit um, fumble their way through self-sacrifice and other-centered love and um, service and an unending commitment. Um, it is an imperfect but a beautiful uh, depiction of Christ's love for the church and his commitment to the church. As beautiful as that is right now, it's not gonna be necessary in uh, the new heaven and new earth. So all of this is just um, sort of argument from logic to maybe help bring some clarity of why that is, why it will be the case that we don't have marriage relationships in heaven. Um, a couple of things to point out, though. It doesn't say it will be a relationshipless heaven. Um, it doesn't say that you won't have some kind of relationship with your husband or your wife or your children or anything like that. It just says that the marriage relationship as we understand it now is not going to be how it is in heaven. The last thing I'll say, um, whatever it is, I don't think that we'll be sad about it when we're there. I don't think we'll be sad about it. Um, however strange it sounds to our minds and however much it bothers like our sentimental hearts, I don't think it will be a disappointment when we're there experiencing the presence and the glory of God without sin messing up our relationships. I think it will be far superior to the most perfect marriage that exists today. Um, Paul says something sort of like this. Um, it's better because it's scripture. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, so I'm gonna read just a, a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star and splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So I think to use this analogy, um, our bodies right now are like an apple seed and what we will be in the resurrection is a delicious honey crisp. So the, and I think, I think that the concept applies to our relationships as well. Like any aspect of life now here on earth is in its seed form and if it can be redeemed in the resurrection then Jesus is going to do that. And so 
marriage as we know it now, even the best marriage, the best moments that you've ever had in your marriage if you've been married, the most intimate and pleasurable and happy moments or seasons in your life and your relationships that you've ever experienced are like a seed is to an apple. And the, so whatever relationships that we're going to experience, whether with a person you were married to or just friendship in the new heaven and the new earth, that is the apple, that is the honeycrisp, and what we experience now is the seed. So it's, I think we're meant to be able to look forward to the kinds of relationships that we'll have with our family, with the family of God. I think it's gonna be beautiful. So those are like the two um, small things that I'm like pulling directly out of this passage of like theology to learn, I suppose. Um, maybe it's not gonna change your life today. Um, that's okay. Um, but there's this big overarching warning, I think, from the last few chapters of Matthew. So Matthew is creating this tension between the power and the authority of Jesus and the power and the authority of the religious leaders. This has been building up really through the whole book, but particularly the last few chapters. And so if you just look, if you have a physical Bible with you um, or pull out the one in front of you if you want um, and look at the section headings in um, Matthew 21 and 22, you can kind of see what's happening. Jesus arrives in this kingly, royal way in the triumphal entry. Palm branches wave, people shouting Hosanna to the religious leaders looking on this situation. It was threatening. It was a threatening image of this guy is gathering a following and he's threatening our, pow our power and our authority. And so shortly after, the religious leaders question Jesus's authority. They're like, who gives you the right to teach all these things? And then Jesus gives them these two parables parables about the two sons and the parable about the wedding, both of which detail in no uncertain terms that God is removing the kingdom from them and offering it to people who they would rather have it not offered to, people that they would deem unworthy. And then Matthew makes sure to point out that each social group, part of the religious order of the day, was threatened by Jesus and is now retaliating trying to trap him and get him in trouble. So we've got the Pharisees, we've got the Herodians, we've got the Sadducees, other kind of parallel passages in the other gospels talk about other elders or experts in the law. Basically, the religious and social elite are all kind of ganging up in a certain way, trying to get Jesus to stop doing what he has been doing. They're trying to discredit him, and it's gonna eventually build to them um, plotting to have him killed. Chapter 23 begins with Jesus warning the crowds that are around to not be like these um, religious leaders and these Pharisees. And so, I think Matthew is both trying to demonstrate the rising tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, just as he's telling us the story. He's telling us how it happened, uh, the tension of the gospel narrative as it leads up to Jesus' um, sacrifice for us. But I also think he means, for his readers, and I'm talking about the audience that he, like, wrote this for in the first century, and also for us, that he would intend for us to see ourselves in the behavior of these religious leaders and be warned against being like them as we come to Jesus. So in this passage, the Sadducees were doing something that I think happens very often today, which is sloppy deconstruction. They come to Jesus with the intention of being right and not the intention to learn with humility. They come to Jesus with a pre-disbelief in a part of theology, the resurrection, um, which existed because they didn't believe in the whole scripture. Um, and it resulted in them limiting the power of God in their mind of what God could or couldn't do. 
Michael Wilkins says, the Sadducees' question about resurrection was an attempt to trap Jesus with what they saw to be an irresolvable dilemma within the belief system of Jesus, but it also revealed their own worldview. They rightly denied the authority of the Pharisees' oral law, but they had boxed in God's voice to the books of the Bible that they believed were inspired, which then boxed God into what they believed he could actually do in this world, and that wasn't much. No immortality, no resurrection, no intervention in history, no spirit world. And I think something like this happens often today. I think I do it. I imagine that you have done it, maybe in small ways, maybe in big ways. But I think when Christians are in seasons of deconstruction, and I just mean asking big questions about your faith. Um, When we're doing that, um, especially about topics that are like hot button issues or divisive, topics that maybe you feel very strongly about, very maybe emotional about, it's easy for us to do what the Sadducees um, have done here. We come in with a pre-disbelief or a predisposition to not want to accept something in scripture as truth. And so we wonder, does the Bible really say that? Or if it does, is that part of the Bible actually authoritative for me? (laughs) Would God really command this? Or would God really prohibit this? Um, Did he really mean that? Would or could God actually do what he says here? Um, So this is that, what I've just described, and I think what the Sadducees are doing is deconstruction without the assumed authority of Jesus. So I will just say I am all for deconstruction. I think it's good. Uh, But I think it has to be done with the authority of Jesus and the scriptures as the foundation and the backbone. You can ask any question, rethink any doctrine or idea that you're facing, that you're struggling with, go back to the drawing board, read your Bible over and over again, study these passages intently, as long as it's done with the foundation that you are placing yourself under the lordship and the authority of Jesus and his word. I'm so good with that. So deconstruction plus Jesus' authority is, that's just good investigative Bible reading. You're trying to learn, it's great. Deconstruction under your own authority is 2 Timothy 4.3. says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. This makes me think of um, Genesis 3, the, the story of the fall, where the, like, it's the beginning of sin is um, the serpent asks Eve, did God really say that? Did God really tell you that you couldn't eat from this tree? That's like the beginning of everything. <laughs> questioning what has God actually said and is that true for me? Is that authoritative for me? What has he said and am I gonna follow it? And so I, th- I think in addition to just hearing what Jesus says about the resurrection and about marriage and the resurrection, I think from this whole section, we have an invitation. I think Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is helping us, hoping that we will, inviting us to Um, come under the authority and the leadership of Jesus to trust him, to trust in his word and trust in his ability to take care of you, to trust him no matter what battles that you're facing in life, whether they're battles of your mind and your thoughts and trying to understand our beliefs as Jesus followers, whether they're battles against sin, battles against flesh in every sense of the word. I mean, like like our physicality and our brokenness, our illness, um, 
The invitation is to come humbly to Jesus with your questions and with your skepticism, but to let him lead you. Um, and I will do literally anything that I can to help Valley Church be a place that is safe for you to have questions and doubts and to feel skeptical. <laughs> um, but make no mistake that when we ask questions, um, when we express our doubts and our, our feelings and the things we're wrestling through, you will be pointed to be under the lordship and the authority of Jesus because he is good and we can trust him and he is our king. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know um, what each of us needs to do in this moment or in this week to um, replace ourselves as under you, as being in a position of humility to say, not, your, not my way, but yours. Not what I say, but what you say. Not what I think, but what you think. I don't know what we need to do to make that a reality. I know it's a work in progress for each and every one of us. But would you do just that? Would you help each of us in a way that only your spirit can do right now to see how we need to return to you, to return to a position of humility, to bow our knee, to confess that you are Lord, you are master, and we are not. And from that position, Lord, would you just help us as we attempt to understand your will for our lives, to understand scripture and all, all that it means for how we live and how we think. Would you help us to be humble and also so confident in you, trusting in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.